Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Its goal was to land within 100 metres of the target. For comparison, uh, when the Apollo missions landed in the 60s, uh, that were crewed, having people do them directly... Their goal was to be within about 10 or 15 kilometres. The Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency has successfully landed on the moon, but the landing wasn't without complications. We find out what went wrong. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. There are fresh calls for the Work for the Dole scheme to be reviewed after charitable organisation the Brotherhood of St Lawrence released an official statement last week that they would no longer be taking on recipients from this scheme from 2024. Georgia Hayway asked Jay Coonan, spokesperson for the Anti-Poverty Centre, what may have prompted the Brotherhood of St Lawrence to cut ties with the scheme. The public was uh, anything to go by it is the acknowledgement that the program just simply doesn't work. They've been running it long enough that they would know that it doesn't work. And I think uh, after the recent Workforce Australia inquiry, there's obviously been conversations and they've just decided to do the right thing, which is to not participate in this program anymore because it doesn't result in meaningful employment for people forced into the program. So the, the scheme started in 97 and was introduced under the Howard government, but has been used by government since um, generally as a, a political flogging tool uh, if things aren't looking too good for them in the polls. Yeah, and the um, the Anti-Poverty Centre obviously wants to see an end uh, to work for the dole. Why, why do you think the scheme has been so ineffective since its inception? Uh, I was a study in 2016 saying that the there was about 2% of people who gained meaningful um, employment after being part of the scheme, what do you think um, makes the scheme disappointing for those who get involved? So the people who are generally on unemployment payments for long enough uh, face other barriers to employment that just simply forcing them into a program is not going to make them employable. That could be disabilities, caring responsibilities, mental health issues and a variety of other you know issues that are going on. It could also be you know, that they live in a poor area with no employment around. So when you're forcing somebody who doesn't want to be on a social security payment to go into a program that forces them to work, generally in an op shop where they don't want to be, they're going and they've already got, you know, mental health, disabilities, caring responsibilities, they're going to have a negative, uh, you know, experience. I mean, the, maybe if it was the same... Uh, report that we saw this was from potentially from the Australian National University Social Research Centre. Um, even though it was constructed to make the program 
look like it was operating well. Um, it showed that, you know, it was only 28% of people who entered the program uh, completed it and that, you know, well over 50% of people uh, put into the program did not complete their time on it. So it just goes to show that it's an ineffective program. And as um, a welfare advocate, and obviously you have an anti-poverty um, stance uh, as a not-for-profit, have you seen any successful programs over the years that help lift uh, Australians out of poverty? Well, the, the first meaningful measure a government can do uh, is increase the rate of uh, social security payments to the Henderson Poverty Line. That happened during COVID uh, with the COVID supplements, um, and it was effective. People were able to you know, keep a roof over the head, pay their bills, buy groceries. Um, but even though with payments so high, uh, you know, people were still missing out on, some people were still not able to afford uh, groceries or pay their medical expenses. So the first thing would be to raise payments. And then the second would be to addressing those issues about what are barriers to employment, because it could be, you know, there, there are a variety of different issues, but the biggest one barrier to employment is poverty. And has your organisation seen any example individuals who have been uh, negatively affected themselves by the scheme itself? Yeah, so we put out a survey in the past uh, seeking responses for people uh, who have been in work for the doll, and we, you know, have a lot of negative stories, whether it's about being placed into unsafe situations, whether, you know, uh, having to deal with broken uh, objects, uh, hurting themselves on work for the doll sites or, you know, even uh, ex- an example of sexual harassment uh, on a work for the doll site. So, you know, there's a, a real mixed bag of harm that is being done by this and people don't feel safe because the only way that they can, you know, resolve the issues is by going to their job service provider who has the ability to cut them off their payments. So people are worried about, um, you know, challenging what they're experiencing on their work for the doll sites as well. So it's a really unsafe situation uh, and they just simply need to end and you just can't force people to do this anymore. Just prior to going to air, the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations gave us a statement which concluded that... The Brotherhood of St Lawrence have not hosted any work for the doll activities since the commencement of Workforce Australia. We sought a response from the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, who are unable to confirm that they participate in the scheme under the Workforce Australia administration. Georgia Hayway ending that report. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. The 30th Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has announced he will be retiring from Parliament as soon as Parliament resumes in February. There's been a lot of speculation about his future since he lost the last election. And I asked Dr Stuart Jackson, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sydney, why it's taken so long for Scott Morrison to make this decision. Well, I do think that uh, Scott Morrison would have exited a year ago if he'd had something suitable um, for his talents to go to. Uh, there was obviously some rumorising around him as a, as a, a loser, but that he had some uh, international uh, company gigs li- lined up, but nothing had materialised effectively. I think with, if you like, a, a, a sort of Trump 
electoral Trumpian comeback in the United States, now is the right time for Morrison to move on to companies that are also organisations that are reacting against Albanese, social democracy, liberal politics. And so there will be organisations and companies that will look to him for ways into Australian Australian markets, Australia or Australian investing. Um, and certainly if Albanese doesn't uh, watch out, you might find yourself with a Dutton government, in which case Scott Morrison becomes very useful indeed. With recent history, a lot of previous leaders, it's it's been like, how do you get them off the stage as quickly as possible? But that hasn't always been the case in political history, has it? I mean, Billy Hughes was around for almost half of the 20th century. Have we always had this, this necessity to get rid of our previous leaders? So there's certainly a history of political leaders staying on for long periods of time. Winston Churchill being you know, quite famously in the, in the UK politics, but also uh, Robert Menzies in Australia, who of course was a pre-war prime minister and then a post-war prime minister and hung around for many years. You have equally the, the example of Billy Hughes, who was in you know, a half dozen different parties, in and out of government, certainly in and out of the prime ministership. So it certainly hadn't been such a strange thing to see an MP or former Prime Minister on the back bench. Gough Whitlam himself was opposition was went from opposition leader to Prime Minister and back to opposition leader and fought election from opposition. Um, twice, in fact, when he won, and then in nineteen seventy seven. There is also the case, of course, of John Howard and Andrew Peacock swapping the leadership between different elections. But now we have the desire to quickly see off a former Prime Minister. I suspect partly because since John Howard, we've had uh, the knifing from the backbench. If someone doesn't leave, leave the party, then they'll want to do over the next prime minister. So you have this sort of fear that this person will try and uh, have a go at you uh, at a later stage. And so there's a concerted movement to get them out the door, as it were, as fast as you can move them. It seems to be all right to be a minister, though, doesn't it? I mean, Susan Lee uh, was sent to uh, purgatory for a while because of her helicopter uh, expense activities, and now she's back and and quite an effective member of, of the opposition. Well, minister, ministerial uh, positions, of course, can be won and lost depending on whether you're in favour with the leader. And so they're of a, a, a lower order. But the prime minister at the end of the day is the person who is identified with the party and who people look to for some form of leadership. It's less of a, an effect when you look to, um, say, a senator who becomes a minister, uh, perhaps then changes to the other house and becomes a different minister. We expect ministers almost to swap between uh, portfolios, particularly if they're not overly successful, every couple of years or so. We don't have long periods of people staying in ministerial positions. It's almost a reward. The prime ministership shouldn't be a reward for services. It should be because you are a leader and you're able to carry ideas forward. Thus, there is less, if you like, hanging on um, your qualities as a person in a ministerial position. We see this with Sula Braverman in the United Kingdom, um, who had a terrible reputation, was sacked as a minister, and then was back eight weeks later with a change of prime minister. 
The other thing that I noticed too was that he's just finished his book and that's been published. Would that have been a project that he really wanted to get done uh, before he left politics? Well, I suspect it's certainly something he, well, he had a few things to get off his chest. So I suspect also that it's a good time for him to go, particularly if he names names or has, you know, particular uh, points to put across. And I still say we have to remember that in part Scott Morrison was a high-flying public servant before and had a focus on, well, where do I go from here? What's my next ambitious step up? I don't think it's into public sector or public service uh, overseas. I do think that it is into private enterprise. And that's certainly where I think he can certainly fulfil his financial ambitions. Dr Stuart Jackson, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sydney, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and you're listening to The Wire, around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In the last 48 hours, a tropical low-pressure system has been forming off the North Queensland coast. The Bureau of Meteorology has been monitoring the system and predicts it will gain the energy required to turn into a tropical cyclone. Far North Queensland residents have been warned to take shelter and prepare for strong winds. Ben Tompkins asked Morgan Pumper, Community Engagement Officer at the Bureau of Meteorology, whether the system has been named as a cyclone yet. Not yet. So we're still referring to it as a tropical low. The only sort of name that we've been using it to classify it from other lows or other systems is O5U. But it is later this evening and into tomorrow where we see the chance of that tropical low developing into a tropical cyclone. So with that, has remained quite stationary overnight over the central coral sea. So with that, still looking at a rough guide or a rough timeline of later tonight or else into tomorrow for it to be named as long as no other cyclone gets named before it, Kiralee, so K-I-R-R-I-L-Y, um, which is probably what people have been hearing in the media. So it just hasn't been named just yet, it has to wait to be a tropical cyclone. It's still a tropical low, but otherwise maybe if we have a chat tomorrow or if people are looking at any of the information could see that name popping up over the next few days. Has the tropical lows uh, direction or severity changed at all in the last 48 hours? Look, great question. So even over the last 24 hours, we have seen it slow down just a little bit. So with that, meaning that it may not grow in intensity as quickly as what we originally had with the guidance. So with that, we are still looking at a crossing at some point Thursday night into Friday morning. So with that, we could see even for this system making landfall, making it um, around that air area and then up to Cardwell with the chance of being a Category 2, with that chance of being a severe tropical cyclone, a Category 3 being a little bit less likely from what we've seen over the past 24, 48 hours. But nonetheless, with that direction, the main concern would be not just when it's going to be making landfall and reach the coast and moving through some of those island communities. So what's going to happen once it makes landfall and moves inland? So that's where we've got still a bit of uncertainty and things would 
change into the weekend when we see that system move inland from the north tropical coast and then, oh, well, for around the air district and then moving into a southerly direction into the central and southern inland. And maybe that direction will change and more so stick around the eastern parts of Queensland and then down into the southeast coast. So that's probably where more of the uncertainty lies. But even in that last 24 hours and 48 hours, we have seen a bit of a change with it slowing down, which with these kinds of systems can mean that it doesn't intensify as quickly because it does draw up some of that water and take away some of the temperature uh, increases in the water as well and as well allowing not allowing some of that wind to combine together and bring that intensity. So there has been a bit of change. We do expect further change, which is the nature of tropical cyclones. They're tough to forecast. Um, so really important for people to be keeping an eye on the track map, which is a bit wobbly in some areas, uh, but otherwise as we into tomorrow and then into the end of the week as well. That watch zone will continue to change, um, but otherwise at the moment does seem like between Townsville and Air, the main area of seeing that landfall direction. What is yeah. the current messaging to Queensland residents at the moment? Absolutely. So especially in areas within the watch zone. So we even see the chance of seeing some damaging winds from tomorrow evening and then even some destructive winds into Thursday. And we expect to start to see some rainfall figures coming in once we see this system develop and as we head into tomorrow evening as well. So with that, between Cairns and St. Lawrence especially, hopefully people have started to get into their actions in regards to their tropical cyclone action kits. So things like batteries, with their radios, making sure that everything's charged up, having their medication, um, and then otherwise making sure that they're staying up to date with the latest information on the Bureau's website, got a track map, and then once it moves inland, moving away from the track map and more so warnings. But other than that, local government also have a range of information and advice for people to follow. If there's any sort of preparedness or safety advice as well that people would like to know, the Queensland Disaster Management Services website's really fantastic in Queensland, used to tropical cyclones. We've had Jasper just earlier last month as well. Um, so with that, it's not the first one of the season um, once it does develop, but otherwise also saving the SES number 132500. Once we do get that heavier rainfall and even the chance of some intense rainfall, making sure that everyone remembers that if it's flooded, forget it. Don't drive through floodwaters. But at the moment, it is a little bit of a watch and wait as the current weather up around the areas they're going to soon start to see that wind increasing and that system move closer to the coast it's a bit of that calm before the storm but otherwise keeping an eye on some of the written content within our track map and then also the warning where it goes into great detail about some of the winds that we're expecting once we grow more confidence in how much rainfall is expected we'll mention that as well and the timing all associated with it as well. Morgan Pumper, Community Engagement Officer with the Bureau of Meteorology, speaking there with Ben Tompkins. For more information, head to the Bureau of Meteorology website, bomb.gov.au. The Japanese Aerospace Explorations Agency, JAXA, have successfully completed a precision landing mission to the moon. The only hiccup in the operation is that the solar panels on the lander did not angle themselves correctly on landing and the device cannot generate power for itself. Dominic Giles asked Dr Ben Monte, Scientia Senior Lecturer at the UNSW School of Physics, just what was the purpose of this mission? This mission called SLIM uh, was in some ways a proof of concept mission. It's a very small scale, low budget 
mission to test out some technological concepts that we've never used before. Uh, its main focus was on really precise landing. Its goal was to land within 100 meters of the targets. For comparison, uh, when the Apollo missions landed in the 60s, uh, that were crewed, having people do them directly, their goal was to be within about 10 or 15 kilometers uh, of, of one specific target. So this is far and away the most precise uh, lunar landing that's ever been attempted. And the goal then is to be able to uh, target much more precisely specific areas of the moon that might be of scientific interest, um, but are hard to, hard to land on because they're small. Uh, and so rather than going for large planes, uh, we can find very, very precise regions that might be interesting for, for various reasons. Why is perfecting precision landing so important? And does this technology translate to bodies other than the moon? Absolutely. So it's tested here on the moon because it's close and easy to, to, to get to, relatively speaking. Uh, but it really depended on having very, very precise mapping, the same kind of mapping we have on Mars. The moon is a very complex surface. Lots of missions previously have targeted flat planes called the, the Mars uh, of, of the moon, meaning the seas. Uh, because they're they're very flat and smooth, but there's lots of areas that are much more structured uh, that might be dangerous to land if you can uh, only say you're going to land within a kilometer of one spot. Uh, if you can target much more precisely, you can then open up a lot more of the moon uh, to to study. This is useful for scientific studies, areas that might be interesting to understand the formation of the moon uh, and its evolution, um, and also for potential moon bases if you want to land near a place where there might be water or something. On the 20th of January, the SLIM landed on the moon. Since then, it has reported power issues. What power problems is the SLIM having, and can it resolve these issues by itself? Yeah, so the moon is uh, what we call nearly tidally locked to the Earth, meaning we always see the same face of it. So as the moon goes around the Earth, which takes about a month, um, then... The the day on the moon uh, is also about a month long. And so uh, when the lunar uh, lander landed, uh, it had a problem in the way that its solar panels deployed. So it landed in the lunar, we'll say the lunar morning, so uh, when the sun is in the east, uh, but its solar panels are pointing west. So they're not facing the sun uh, because then it's a month long uh, orbit for for the, the lunar day. Uh, over the next couple weeks, uh, the sun will move into the west, into lunar afternoon, at which point the panels will face the sun. So right now they're not getting light. There is hope that in a few days, a week or so, they will start getting more light and that will be able to then power the, the, the lander uh, and it will enable more science. Does Australia have any plans to follow Japan's example and join in on research out of our atmosphere? So, so the Australian Space Agency is uh, relatively new. It started in the last few years. Uh, it has a lot of focus on looking downwards, doing Earth monitoring, things like bushfires, uh, and understanding the oceans, uh, and doing satellite monitoring of the Earth from space. There is, you know, in the future, perhaps some, some growth towards uh, outward-looking uh, astronomy through the Space Agency. I don't know of any you know, active thoughts towards um, uh, leading a moon mission at this point. With the rise of commercial space exploration companies, what does the future hold for state-run space agencies? Uh, I think there's a space for both. State-run space agencies 
so-called blue sky, although skies aren't blue in space, uh, but blue sky research that maybe doesn't have a direct profit motive, uh, but helps us understand uh, where we come from. So missions that can study the formation of the moon, the formation of Mars, uh, and really understand why the solar system is the way it is. Much harder to imagine private corporations doing that kind of work, um, but it's really fundamental from understanding why we're here. Uh, and so I think there's always going to be a space for uh, state-based space agencies doing doing that sort of work. And I think we'll see a lot of partnerships between places like JAXA and NASA and other other uh, national space agencies and uh, private corporations. We already see that with uh, say SpaceX doing a lot of launches for NASA and things like that. Dr. Ben Monte, Scientia Senior Lecturer at the UNSW School of Physics, speaking there with Dominic Giles. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.